And so we're starting here this morning in Exodus 33. In fact, we're going to look at Exodus 32, a bit in 33, and also in 34. At Moses' plea to God, show me your glory. It's, it's my prayer here this morning. And that you're here because you desire to know God. And not just in, not just in a superficial way, not just to know God, but you desire to see God's glory. You desire to see his magnificent. You desire to, to have that, that joy in him. You perhaps you read about other Christians in the past who've been consumed with a love of God. And you're like, if only I could see God in that way, see what they saw such that I would have my joy in the Lord and him alone. What a life that would be. So this morning we seek to cultivate within our hearts that desire to know him, to catch a glimpse of his greatness. The greatest pursuit that we have as creatures is to know our creator. But how do we do it? Okay, that's a fair question now right off the start. How do we do it? And the reason why we're looking at the glory of God and the salvation of sinners is one of the primary ways, if not the primary way to see the glory of God is to see it in the face of Jesus Christ and his work in the salvation of sinners. For we read in the book of Ephesians, the chapter, first chapter, the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, this refrain three times is done in the salvation of sinners such that God would be glorified to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. <clears throat> For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What power to create the light. He has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? He shone in our hearts as believers to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we behold Christ, as we behold who he is and what he has done, we see the glory of God. Today, to prepare our hearts for that study, we're going to look back and begin in Exodus. In this account of Moses desiring to see the glory of God, show me your works, show me your glory. And we're going to clear away some of the dangers that we must be aware of and avoid, such that we're not content in worshiping a small God. A God who's not truly a God. We need to, to clear away some of the, the cultural Christianity that we've become accustomed to in our day and age, thinking this must be it, but that is not it. That's not the glory of God in salvation, as we're going to see in Scripture. So this morning is going to be a clearing away of false ideas of God as we prepare to see Him in His glory, in the salvation of sinners. We're going to look at Exodus 33 again, but before we do, I want you to flip back to Exodus 32. The context of Moses asking God to show him his glory. Let's look at Exodus 32. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Okay? The first eight verses. Exodus 32, verses 1 to 8. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out up out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to stop reading there. We see the context coming into Exodus 33 of Moses interceding for the Lord and asking God to show me your glory is the context of the people of Israel crafting and now worshiping a golden calf. So as Moses is on the mount desiring to seek the one true God and have God show him his glory, God's people whom he ransomed out of Egypt were now bowing in front of a golden cow that they just crafted with their own hands. It's almost too hard to believe when they cried, these are the gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We have here is people exchanging the glory of God for a golden calf, a cheap substitute that cannot speak, that cannot act, that has no attributes, that has not created, that cannot redeem nothing. It was made and fashioned by their own hands. And now they worship before. Listen to what Psalm 106, 19 and 21 says about this incident. Okay, Psalm 106. Listen to what it says about this. It says they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Did you hear how the psalm described what they did? Exchanging the glory of God for a golden calf. So as Moses pleaded, God, show me your glory. Here you have the people of Israel exchanging the glory of God for a cheap substitute that has no power and no glory at all. As I said, it's hard for us to imagine. These people saw the great plagues in Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea with walls of water on both sides. and on, They walked through on dry ground. They saw the waters come back down across on top of the Egyptian army and seeing them drown and destroyed. They were led by a pillar of fire by night and by a cloud of smoke by day. They were cared for in the desert miraculously by God. And now they craft this golden calf out of wood and overlay it with gold, exchanging the glory of God and his actions and his ways and his goodness and his redemption for this golden calf. 
Now, what do we really think when we read this story? We probably think our first knee-jerk reaction is, they witnessed all of that and this is what they did? How, how could they be so dense? How, how could they have missed it? How could they have seen the glory of God, but yet not really see it? How could they have heard the glory of God and, 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 and saw it manifest in mind, but, but didn't hear? Didn't grasp it? How could they do it? Now, we would be foolish to think that we could not be like them. Whenever we see someone acting foolishly in Scripture, we should look at ourselves and say, how are we foolish like they are foolish? They saw the glory of God, but they didn't see it. They exchanged the glory of God for a cheap fabrication. We should be cautious when they saw God's glory and that they exchanged it for a cheap substitute. That we as a people who have who have the word of God, what a treasure. Who have the witness of the gospel. Who have the history of the church and the blood of the martyrs. And have all of these things. We are also in danger of seeing, but not seeing. Of hearing, but not really hearing. Of having available to us God's revelation, his glory. And exchanging it for a cheap substitute. Tacking the name onto it, Christian. Tacking the name onto it, church but yet have no substance of the glory of God. We need to be careful ourselves. Not only did the Israelites exchange the glory of God, listen to what Paul said in Romans 1, okay? He says this in Romans 1, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, he's talking here mostly about the Gentiles, pagan religions. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. What he's saying is as God has revealed himself. His glory is not just manifest in his deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, but it's also manifest in creation. God goes so far to say that his divine nature and his eternal power is clearly perceiving the things that he has made such that no one has an excuse. That's how clear it is. We know that God is an eternal God because of creation. We know that God is all-powerful because of creation. We know his divine nature. We know that he is a God who is good and who is beautiful and enjoys beauty because we can look at God's creation and we sense the beauty of it all. And so we see God's goodness and his power and his eternality in the things that he's made. It's so clearly, so clear, the Bible says that none of us have an excuse to deny God or his existence. But listen to how it describes those who do reject the truth of God it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you hear the scriptures describe false religion? Exchanging the glory of God for man-made substitutes. 
That's, that's the sum total of false religion. That's what the people of Israel did whenever they built their golden calf. And that's what people all around the world do today when they worship idols. Even atheists who deny God have to worship something and it's in themselves, in humanity. They exchange the glory of God for a man-made substitute. And so it's not just the Israelites back in the Exodus generation. We have Hinduism with their plethora of gods exchanging the glory of God for all of these millions or more incomparable forgeries of God. We have Islam and Muhammad's understanding of who God is. And again, it's exchanging the glory of God for something that is not God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses are all practicing idolatry, exchanging the truth of the real God into a God that is no God at all. Every religion in the world that is not true biblical Christianity has in some way or another exchanged the glory of the true God and has presented a God that is not a God, an idol, an idol, an abomination to God. Now, at this point, when we consider Israel and as we consider the plethora of false religions today, we're tempted to puff ourselves up and say, ah, not us. We got the truth, don't we? And as soon as we go there, we're in such danger. We're in such danger. Because it's not just the Israelites who are in danger of worshiping a false god. It's not just pagan religions around the world who are in danger of worshiping a false god. It's even us in the church who call ourselves Christians. We're in danger of exchanging the glory of God and worshiping something that is not God. What I want to do here this morning is highlight a few ways that we as the church in the West broadly have exchanged the glory of God for a substitute that is not God. As I go through this, I haven't been looking forward to this part of the sermon because I I don't want to purposely come across as um, trying to crush people. I don't want you to leave here just feeling wounded and, oh, he's talking about me and I'm exposing. Just like it was exposed to the people of Israel, Moses came down from that mountain and exposed to them this false idol that they were worshiping. How we too can so easily get distracted and worship a false god and embrace a, a cultural view of who God is and what salvation is. And the point and why we're going here to expose exchanges of God's glory here in the church in the West is to prepare the way for the true glory of God. So we would not be satisfied for these little false and small views of God that are out there in the church in the West. So we see, no, our trust cannot be in those gods because those aren't true gods. But we want to see God's glory. We want to see God for who he is. And so we're going to clear away that some of that rubble here this morning. The first thing I want to talk about is how God and his glory is exchanged here in the West. And if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you've heard the phrase, the sinner's prayer. Sinner's prayer. What is a sinner's prayer? The sinner's prayer is a prayer that one makes in order to become a Christian. Okay, it was popularized uh, in the 20th century by uh, evangelists like Billy Graham, uh, by Campus Crusade for Christ. On the Billy Graham Institute website, 
This is the sinner's prayer. It's according to the Billy Graham Institute. It's this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. While the intentions, and while that prayer is a good prayer, and the intentions were good, the sinner's prayer has grown in our day and age to be some kind of magical incantation that when someone just says these words with any level of sincerity, then they are a Christian no matter what. That kind of thinking exchanges the glory of God for a false substitute. Let me tell you why. Three different ways. The first way. The sinner's prayer exchanges the glory of God for a superstitious incantation that is sending more people to hell than to heaven. Okay? The sinner's prayer exchanges the glory of God for a superstitious incantation that is sending more people to hell than to heaven. Now, why would I say such a thing? Could someone be prayed, saved by praying that prayer of salvation? Certainly. Have many people been saved by praying that prayer? Certainly. Perhaps you are here today as a Christian because you prayed a prayer just like that. And I thank God for that. And yet we can't deny that most people in Canada and the United States claim to be a Christian and have prayed that prayer. But it's obvious that most people who call themselves a Christian in our society today are not. And they have assurance of their Christianity because they've prayed that prayer. And because someone told them, if you pray these prayers and this words, then you are a Christian. And then one day when you die, you will definitely go to heaven. That thinking is almost like an inoculation to people. They receive a little bit of truth, but yet it's not the entire truth. And it's a deceptive way such that when you actually try to share with them the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what it means to be a disciple, they, I already got that. I prayed the prayer. I don't need church. I don't, I don't need the word of God. I don't, need, I don't need holiness, love for God. What's that? I don't need that. I, I prayed the prayer. And so now they're refusing biblical Christianity and it's sending people to hell. True Christianity is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Of course, it's to, to call out to God for salvation. But who's it to call out to? This God who's created all things and it's to bow allegiance to Him. It's to take up your cross and to follow Him, to deny yourself. To become a disciple of Jesus Christ means that old things have passed and new things have come. And this comes by the grace of God. Such that we have a new heart, we have new desires, we love God, we love Christ, we love the church, we love holiness, we love His Word, we love to tell people about the gospel. And it's not because we've done these things in order to merit God's favor or salvation, it's because God has supernaturally invaded our hearts with His love through the preaching of His Word, such that we are born again. And someone who is born again into God's family who's been, who's had this encounter with this God of the universe, who's made them a new creature, cannot leave that encounter unchanged. We cannot just have a, a little season of religion, then go back to our life and just live the way we normally lived, and then call ourselves a Christian. 
You've encountered the living God. You've encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. His spirit indwells you and resides inside you and you're left unchanged. Does that sound like biblical Christianity? I can assure you it's not. Not when we look at the Bible. And yet so many are deceived because of this sinner's prayer, which is peddled almost like an incantation. Number two, the sinner's prayer exchanges a trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ for a trust in the sincerity of our spoken words. The sinner's prayer exchanges a trust in the person and work of Christ for a trust in the sincerity of our spoken words. So often as you look at tracts, other evangelistic materials, at the very end they have the sinner's prayer with the instructions. If, if you... If you believe in God, if you believe that Jesus has died for your sins, then pray this prayer. And then right after that, they say, if you've prayed this prayer, and if you were genuine, then welcome to the family of God. You're a Christian. Don't let anybody, don't let anybody question you about your Christianity. In fact, we have pastors today, when people come to them and say, Pastor, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. I've been struggling, I've been reading the word, and, and I've, I've been feeling conviction, and I'm not sure if I'm truly a Christian. And that pastor will say to them, did you pray the prayer? I did. Were you sincere? I was. Then you're a Christian. Where is the assurance of our salvation in that case? The fact that I've prayed that prayer. Where is the assurance in the finished work of Jesus Christ? That is the foundation of our insurance of, of our assurance as Christians. Why am I a Christian? Because Jesus Christ has died for me. That's, that's the only ground I have of my salvation because Jesus Christ, this perfect sinless one, came to this earth and he bled and he died and he rose again for justification and new life. And he says, all those who come to me are going to receive the promises of, of what he's offered there, his forgiveness and eternal life. And so our confidence is in Christ and in his work alone, not in the sincerity of our spoken words. Number three. The sinner's prayer exchanges the power of God in salvation and the new birth for an impotent God and carnal Christians. Let me say that again. The sinner's prayer exchanges the power of God in salvation and the new birth for an impotent God and carnal Christians. As the sinner's prayer gained in popularity in our culture, so too did this new teaching that was called the carnal Christian. Perhaps you've heard of this teaching before. Not, it's not used typically in that name anymore, but it has the idea that someone can become a Christian and yet they can live indistinguishable from the world. From a wrong interpretation of 1 Corinthians 3, this title was put on these people called a carnal Christian. And so where did this come from? <clears throat> this idea of a carnal Christian, that you could live worldly, and still have assurance that you're a Christian. Well, it came because as the sinner's prayer grew in popularity, we have tons of people, thousands, if not millions of people praying the sinner's prayer. And yet none of them showing any kind of distinguishable characteristics of looking like the Lord Jesus Christ. Very few of them even attending church. None of them having a love for the Lord. None of them having love for the word. None of them wanting to seek to grow in holiness. They say that the Holy Spirit has come upon them, but they have no desire for holiness. 
He's called the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And so as this propagated, a new category was created. A carnal Christian. We know they're Christians because they prayed the prayer, but yet they are carnal because they don't obey God. They don't look like Christians. And so we call them carnal Christians. The problem with this is exchanges the glory of God and specifically God's power in the new birth with an impotent God who cannot change people. The new birth. When someone is born again, the Bible says that they are a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. For those who have Christ, they are a new creature. They walk in newness of life, it says in Romans 6.4. Old things have gone, new things have come, new attitudes, new dispositions, a desire for holiness, a love for God, a love for his church, a love for the word. Not just outward obedience, but an inward love for the things of God. That's a product of the new birth. And that is a powerful work of God in our hearts. And so the sinner's prayer and the carnal Christian exchanged the power of God and the power of the new birth for an impotent God. Who cannot change people. Not only that, it goes directly against scripture. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us this. That without holiness, a person will not see the Lord. It's a strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. But I thought we believed in, in justification by faith alone. We do. Saving faith is never alone. One of the products of the new birth is faith. First John 5, 1 tells us, That those who have believed that Jesus is the Christ have been born of God. Why do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because you've been born of God. And not only do you believe that Jesus is the Christ because you've been born of God, but your life is going to begin and start to look like the Lord Jesus Christ because he's put within you not only a faith in him, but a love for him. That's going to translate into good works. Saving faith is never alone. Sanctification is always involved after our justification. So these are different ways where in our day of Christianity in the West, we can substitute the glory of God for false substitutes. If we want to see God's glory, we have to look beyond those substitutes. Don't be satisfied with an incantation that has no power. Don't be satisfied with these substitutes. We want to look to Christ and look to the scriptures. Now, how can so many people be wrong today? Well, Jesus said to the religious people in his day, he says, you are wrong because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. I want the true power of God. I don't want a false substitute. I want to see God's glory in the salvation of sinners. Not just people who call themselves Christians, but there's no power there. I want to see God's glory. So you have to remove those false ideas of what it means to become a Christian if we want to see God's glory. The second way we can exchange God's glory here in the church in the West is through misunderstanding God's love. Misunderstanding God's love. Salvation, God's rescue of sinners, is a demonstration of His love. 
We know intuitively and from the scriptures and from the salvation of sinners that God is a God of love. Even our society would grant us that. God is a loving God. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And Romans 5, 8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love in the salvation of sinners. We're in danger of exchanging God's love for a false substitute. Exchanging the glory of God in his love for something that is far, far short of God's true love. How do we do that? Here's one way. The cultural God of love and tolerance exchanges the true love of God, which rescues sinners with a false love that affirms sinners. Let me say that again. The cultural God of love and tolerance. I'm talking about the, the understanding of God typical in our culture here in the West. The cultural God of love and tolerance exchanges the true love of God, which rescues sinners with a false love that affirms sinners. Love, acceptance, tolerance, affirmation. That's the cry of our day. In fact, it's such a loud cry of our day that if you are not tolerant, according to their view of tolerance, they'll be very intolerant towards you. Okay? It's a bit ironic. But in a society that wants tolerance, because they, they equate tolerance with acceptance and with affirmation, such that if you were not, even if you're a Christian or not a Christian, if you were to say homosexuality as a lifestyle is not best, they would say, you're intolerant. And what they mean by that is, you're not affirming of that lifestyle. You don't, you don't love them because you're not affirming. You're not accepting. You could say, well, in my understanding of the world and of things, I'm going to stay on the side of history and I'm going to say that men should not be allowed to be a woman just because they say that. You would be called in our society today intolerant, unloving. Because you're not affirming. You're not loving. You're not accepting. And so here, tolerance and love come in with approval and acceptance and agreement. And so to affirm is to be tolerant. To affirm is to be loving. That's why we have a God who is love. God will affirm. God will accept. And we have churches today, even evangelical churches, who now call themselves, you can go to a website to go to affirming churches. Churches who affirm and tolerate and love people who are gay and gay Christians. Okay? Now, it's not my... I'm using someone who is a homosexual as an example here. But by no means are we seeking to condemn a certain kind of sin in our society today. This is an example of when you say something is sin, that you are called intolerant or unloving. They say, isn't God loving isn't God's heart one of love? I've heard this say before. It's just not God's heart to condemn. It's just not God's heart to do this. God loves. He affirms. He accepts. And so our view of God as a God of love is one of acceptance and affirmation. 
And I think there's a danger here. It's exchanging the glory of God's love for a false substitute. Because how does God love us? He doesn't love us by affirming us in our sin. He loves us by rescuing us from our sin. He loves us by sending his son because we're broken. Each and every single one of us. No matter what our, our sins or our craving or desire, even if you were born this world a liar, you need the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so God loves us in such a way that he sent his son. That's what it says. God so loved the world that he gave us his son. That whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's the glory of God's love, that he would actually step into history, into time, in, in his son, and he would go down to this earth and he would ransom a people for God, rescue them, not affirm us in our sin, in our condemnation, but free us from it, free us from that bondage. We all need rescue. We all need rescue and our sins, all of our sins are so bad that God himself needed to die. It would be unloving for him to simply to affirm us in our sin. The second way we can exchange the glory of God when we consider love, the cultural God of love and tolerance exchanges the great commission for the great deception. Okay, the cultural God of love and tolerance exchanges the great commission for the great deception. Because our cultural God of love and tolerance says it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, as long as you're loving, sincere. It doesn't matter if you're a Jehovah's Witness, Catholic, you know, all these different groups. As long as you're, you're loving and sincere. Even if you're an atheist, that's okay. As long as you're, you're loving and you're sincere and you do your best to treat others kindly, well, that's okay. God will look with favor upon you. And we might think, well, we're not tempted with this idea. We know the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We know that. We know that Peter declared boldly in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We know that, right? We're not going to falter on this point, right? Do we get it, though? How active are we in this task of making the gospel of Jesus Christ known? Have we unwittingly embraced the culture's view of this God of, of love and acceptance and affirmation such that the Great Commission is mute in our life? We don't tell people the gospel. And why wouldn't we tell people the gospel? Because deep down inside, we don't believe it's the power of God to salvation and that it meets humanity's greatest need. If we truly believe that, think about it. Would we not share it with others? Especially those who we know are close to us. We know they don't love God. We know they are not in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But so often we've embraced this cultural view of God. And we've exchanged the glory of God and we've exchanged the Great Commission for this great deception where we now take part in affirming people in their sin. This is why it's so important to consider the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. 
This is why it's so important that we don't exchange the glory of God for these false substitutes. Like the people of Israel constructing this golden calf and said, this is the Lord, let's offer sacrifices to the Lord. Not at all. Far cry. So let us not be deceived as well in our day and exchange the glory of God for something that is not. And these aren't all the ways that we can exchange the glory of God. We can embrace pragmatism. We can embrace uh, functional deism where we don't have a relationship at all with God. We don't feel like he relates. We can treat God as just therapy, comfort through our lives. We can treat God in the scriptures as, as some kind of moral compass. All these are ways that we exchange the glory of God for false substitutes. And exchanging God for a false substitute will lead to sin, will lead to a mangled view of scripture and poor theology. No great commission, no true joy, no true worship because there's no true conversion. Now, I want to go back to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. So we read about the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. We're unable to read all these chapters to see the progression of the story. But when God first, his first response to their construction of this golden calf calf was to destroy the people and to start fresh with Moses. You know, look at Exodus 32.10. Exodus 32.10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That was God's first response. This is going to destroy these people. They are, they are wicked, stiff-necked people. I'm going to start afresh. But then in verse 11, Moses intercedes. says, but Moses implored the Lord his God. So Moses intercedes for the people and God relents from the disaster that he was intending to bring upon them. And now look at Exodus 33, the first three verses of Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up up out of the land of Egypt to the land to which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God's second alternative was, all right, Moses, I'm not going to destroy the people. You've interceded. Go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel to go on my spot, but I'm not going with this people, because this people is a stiff-necked people. And so Moses, again, intercedes for the people and says, if you're not coming with us, we don't want to go. And that's the context when Moses asked God to show him his glory. And so God went from wanting to destroy the people, then to say, I'll send the angel. And then the God, God finally agrees to come with the people. And then we read this in Exodus 33. If you go back to Exodus 33, I'm going to read again. Starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Moses asking for, show me your ways 
that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. Moses had already seen the glory of God. Moses had witnessed the glory of God before. But yet now, after seeing the people embrace a false substitute, seeing God's judgment come upon them, then interceding with God a number of times so that God would remain with them, he now desires again to see God's glory. One of the first things we can take from this text is for those who have seen God's glory truly, they will not be satisfied with a substitute. And not only that, they are going to desire to know more and more of God. Moses says, God, show me your ways. God has just led them out of Egypt. The a greatest demonstration of his power. I think we can read about in scripture with all these plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, provision in the desert. And now Moses saying, show me your ways. Show me your glory. He can't get enough. For anyone here who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has truly encountered the living Christ through the mediation of the Holy Spirit, you can't get enough of God. And if you're here today and if you have no interest in the things of God, you don't want to know him more. You have no no concern for his word. You have no concern for his glory. You have to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? Those who have seen the glory of God desire more. They hunger and thirst for God's glory, for his righteousness. They want to know him. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this our heart? Or are you satisfied with your knowledge of God? I, I know a bit about God and I'm content with that. I'm content with my view of God. That doesn't seem like it would fit in any kind of biblical category read about someone who's, who's actually witnessed God's glory in the scriptures. Who, who, who has seen the glory of God and, yeah, I was, I'm good with that. I don't want to see that anymore. I'm content. No, we, we hunger and thirst to know him more and more. The people were content with the golden calf, but Moses wanted to see God's glory. And we have to ask about ourselves. Are we comfortable with just with a cultural Christianity or do we want to push aside and we want to see God's glory in true biblical salvation? Now, what exactly is the glory of God in this context? Look at Exodus thirty-three nineteen again. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you 
and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Okay. Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me your ways. God says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you and proclaim to you my name. Okay, so that is God's name and his goodness and his ways are his glory, his fame, his majesty, his splendor, his awesomeness, his beauty, his magnificence. That's what I mean by his glory and his name and his goodness and his ways are God's glory. Consider his name. Name here is the Lord, ruler of heaven and earth. When Moses said earlier to God, what is your name? God said, I am. And even the the tetragrammaton, this Hebrew name for God that's translated here, the Lord, is derived from that same verb, I am. I am. There are only two categories of beings in existence. That which is created and that which is uncreated. And there's only one that fits in that first category, and that's God. Everything else has been created. Everything else has an origin. Everything else has a beginning. There is only one who is the I am, self-existent, eternal, no beginning, no origins. In him is life. He is the great I am. Therefore, there is a holy separation between who God is and who we are. God has no beginning. He is the I am, the Lord, the uncreated one. And that's his glory. We also see his goodness. His character is his glory. Look at Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Exodus 34, 5 to 7. This is when God comes before Moses. Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here's God's glory in a proclamation of his goodness, his characteristics, his attributes, his Graciousness, his mercy, his slowness to anger, his abounding in love and faithfulness, his forgiveness of sin and transgression, and yet at the same time, his justice in executing judgment. Okay, this is, this is the glory of God, who he is, his character. He doesn't work to be these things. He is by definition these things. We see mercy and grace and love and compassion and patience as virtues. And we see them as virtues because they are God's attributes. Not ours. We don't possess those things. We, 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 might, we might scratch at the surface and possess them in a small part, but these attributes belong to God. We know they're virtues because this is God's character. And so his goodness is his glory. The third things, we have his name, his goodness, and his ways or his actions for his people. Look at Exodus 34.10. Exodus 34.10. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. 
for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God's actions towards his people are his glory. His glory. We see his glory in his name. We see the glory in his goodness. And we see his glory in his actions. Now as we turn here in the next coming weeks, we're going to look at God's actions towards his people to redeem them from their sins. Okay? Now if we want to see God's glory, and this is how God revealed himself to Moses, how can we receive God's glory? We, we expect God to hold us in the cleft of a rock and cover us with his hand and walk in front of us. Is this what we're asking for? This is what we're desiring. How do we see God's glory today? We're not in Sinai anymore. We haven't just witnessed the Exodus. Well, we see God's glory in the same way. Through his name, through his goodness, and through his actions. Consider his name. John 17, 6 says this. Jesus speaking. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept my word. How do, we, how do we know the name of Jesus? Where do we, where do we see the, the name of the Lord, God's name manifest? It's in the work and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says he came to manifest God's name, display his glory. So we look to Christ. What about God's goodness? God's goodness is also revealed through his son and in his work of salvation. John 1, 12 to 14 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Where do we see the goodness of God on display most vividly? In the person of Jesus Christ. So when we're desiring to see the glory of God, we're looking for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for the proclamation of God's works and wonders through the ministry of Christ. We're looking for who Jesus is and what he did. And finally, the glory of God in his actions for his people. We see that in the work of the Lord Jesus and his power to save, to call, to justify, to adopt, to forgive, to redeem to glorify, to sanctify, to preserve us until the end. We see all of that in the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory and grace. I want to end with this final thought. We've looked at the exchange of God's glory for false substitutes. We've looked at the demonstration of His glory, the time of Moses, and how that's reflected through Jesus Christ. Now we can gaze at God's glory today and that will be the focus of our study in the next eight weeks. But I want to look at the response, the desired response to God's glory. Look at Exodus 34, verse 8. Exodus 34, verse 8. When Moses witnessed the glory of God, it says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He worshipped. The primary response that we are expecting as we pursue a knowledge of the glory of God and the salvation of sinners is worship. Ah, wonder. Who is this God who loves in this way, who acts in this way, who has redeemed so powerfully and so effectively through his son and through his death and resurrection? Such that we worship. Such that we worship. And look at verse number nine in Exodus 34. 
He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. As we consider our response to the glory of God, it's one of worship and adoration, and it's one of confession, and of seeking pardon, and of seeking God's favor, and of seeking His presence. So as we consider the glory of God and the work of salvation, it should drive us to worship, and it should drive us to see our sin and our need for Christ. Such that he would plead, such that we would plead with him, oh God, forgive our iniquities. Show compassion. Extend your grace. Show your favor. Do not desire a lesser substitute. Do not exchange the glory of God in the salvation of the sinner. Do not exchange the miracle of the new birth for cheap substitutes that cannot save, who have no power. Where it won't drive us to worship, that won't drive us to confession and repentance before God. Earnestly desire to see the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. May you meditate on that this week to prepare our hearts for what is to come. Let's pray. God, we covered a lot of ground this morning. I do pray. That as we seek to expose false ideas about you in order to prepare the way to be wowed, to prepare the way to delight, to take joy in your true glory. Oh, I pray that these truths would not crush any soul here. God, I pray that we would not be satisfied with false substitutes. I pray that we would hunger and thirst to know you more and more. That our lives would be consumed with this holy pursuit to know you, our God, our creator, this one who loves, this one who loves to the point where sending your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from sin, to explore the wonders of the new birth, what it means to be born again. What it means for a life to be changed by the power of your spirit. Oh God, give us grace to hunger after you. Give us grace to destroy the idols in our lives, the things that we are treasuring that are false substitutes. Show us your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.